We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. In section 18, we have a revelation that's given to Joseph Smith for Oliver Cowdery, and then about halfway down, had, uh, the Lord adds David Whipper into that as well. But it's interesting because I think in starting in verse 2 through verse 5, um, he says, Behold, I have manifested unto you that my spirit in many instances and the things which you have written are true. Wherefore, you know that they are true. And if you know they are true, behold, I will give unto you a commandment that you rely upon things which are written. For in them are all things written concerning the foundation of my church, my gospel, and my rock. Wherefore, if you shall build up my church upon the foundation of my gospel and my rock, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. This is the Lord speaking to Oliver. And I think what he's telling him is to rely on the truths that he has found written in the Book of Mormon. And then later on, when he asks Oliver and David Whitmer to find the 12 apostles, Oliver uses the references in the Book of Mormon as kind of a guidance to what the roles and responsibilities of the Quorum of the 12 will be. And I think, I mean, obviously, everything that's written in these revelations to these men is also for our benefit. When you hear it and it's like, okay, you have been given the rock, the foundation, the truth. Now base everything you do off of that. Just those, those simple verses kind of saying, not only do you have that, not only do you have access to that truth, but you can consult with that and know that if, it, if whatever you're doing, whatever decisions you're making are founded on that foundation of truth, um, then you're on the right path. You know, you're on the right, you're on the right way. And the, it says the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. That's a pretty good promise. Yeah. This was interesting what the, the commentary said here on these verses. Because it says, um, Oliver Cowdery was informed that he had received witnesses by the spirit of truth of the work, especially of the Book of Mormon. Many times during the translation of the record, manifestations of this kind had come to him. Not only had the spirit made the truth manifest, but he had previous, he had previous to this revelation stood in the presence of a heavenly messenger and under his hands received the holy erotic priesthood. Therefore, the Lord could say unto him, I have manifested unto you by my spirit in many instances that these things which you have you have written are true. Wherefore, you know that they are true. And um, my thought I had on that was Oliver Cowdery, he's, he's really important. And the Lord has worked a lot with him to give him evidence, uh, teaching him, Gain, to gain a testimony and to have all these marvelous experiences. And now he's going to be tasked with even greater work. But we know, spoiler alert, that at some point Oliver Cowdery leaves and becomes disillusioned. He, in time, he will return, you know. But for me, it's kind of like if someone like him could fall, even if he fell for a season, how how can someone like me, whom I would say I don't have all of these great, amazing experiences that he's had, but how do I hang on to what I do have? How do I ensure that that I hang on to the rod? You know? Well, yeah, I think it, it basically comes down to remembering what what is your foundation and does it match the Lord's foundation, right? Are the things that motivate you the same things that the Lord says should be motivating us? And the things that you base your decisions off of, are they based in the gospel or are they based in your understanding? You know, 
that that's kind of the hard part is sometimes we really really want something and it's hard to say whether we're making that decision because we're inspired to do it or because we've gotten a, a an affirmative answer from the lord or if it's just that we really really want to do it and we're going to do it no matter what <laughs> you know? yeah there's um there's an important scripture later on in the next chapter but i'll bring it up because it kind of applies to this section um in in chapter in section 19 in verse 31 um when the lord's giving some counsel and he says and of tenants thou shalt not talk but thou shalt declare repentance and faith in the savior and remission of sins by baptism and by fire ye even by holy ghost and it's interesting because tenants it's it's a it's a funny word but it's kind of the the reference to that word in the footnote to other scriptures second timothy chapter 2 verse 23 and 24 where he says but foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strifes and the and the servant of the lord must not strife but must be gentle unto all men apt to teach and patient and so tenants is like this it's almost like these offshoots of the gospel or, or these uh things that are most of the time we say is that relevant to your salvation is that are you staying on task and joseph and oliver and martin harris and all these early brethren have gotten this far by asking questions by being curious by saying hey we read this in the book of mormon or as we translate what about this and then they get more and more so there's Obviously, the Lord wants a relationship with us where we ask questions, where we seek to know things, where we are curious, where, where we study. But there is also this desire for us to, I don't know, in a, in a way, kind of keep our eyes single to the glory. And I think under that way of looking at things, I think this next verse is in, in chapter 18 where, where Oliver is told, in 10 and 11, verse 10 and 11, it says, Remember the worth of the souls is great in the sight of God. For behold, the Lord your Redeemer suffereth death in the flesh, wherefore he suffereth the pains of all men, and all men that all men might come, might repent and come unto him. And so for me, it's always like the Lord does a really good job of always tying everything into what is the purpose, what is the reason. And I think oftentimes we get caught up in rituals or omens, close to omens. We're looking for, for omens and rituals and things that we can we can apply at certain situations. And in our obedience of the gospel principles and commandments should always be looked at as what is the purpose of this? To what end? And how do we exercise our agency, our knowledge, and the power to receive revelation to adapt our teachings or our efforts to that situation? And I know this probably doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it makes sense to me uh, in my own weird way that we the theme that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God is almost always like the Lord kind of hurting our thoughts and bringing them back to focus on why am i asking all of this of you why am i giving you all these experiences why am i commanding you to go do this to do that to because the worth of souls is great in the sight of god and it begins with our soul and it goes to our neighbor and then it expands even to our enemies the way we need to look and act and think about these things and i love how he mentions after right after that scripture he says and i suffer death and all pains to in my mind i view that as him saying and don't come to me complaining <laughs> i know what i'm asking of you to look at these souls to look at your actions through this point of view as every soul is important even the ones that will talk bad about you that will treat you poorly that will won't agree with you that think differently even that is so important that you need to always keep that in mind. Well, this part's really crucial to me because he starts out by saying everyone has divine worth. And then he says that that is why 
the atonement had to happen because the whole point is for everyone to be able to go back to our Heavenly Father. And that's also why the restoration of this gospel has to happen. So those are inseparable. That's a, a, a complete corresponding chain of things. The fact that every soul is worth something, the fact that he suffered for each and every one of us and went through each and every one of our pains, and the fact that he had to restore the gospel upon the earth again to help bring those souls that are worth so much to salvation again. So he draws that line. And then he says the next, very next thing, verse 13, and how great is his joy in the soul that repenteth. He starts going into repentance. And I think he goes about it, the positive and motivational outlook on, on repentance. Repentance is a mean, means to return to the presence of God, right? It's not so much punishment avoidance. That's not what repentance is about. It's not about just dodging, getting in trouble, right? Oh, I, I better straighten out or else, you know, that's not what it's about. What repentance is about is returning to the fullness of joy that you can experience and getting rid of the things that are impeding that. And so he's bringing that up, you know, why does he bring that up? Because Christ already did the atonement. He already gave us the means by which we can get there. And now he's like, this is why it's so important to reestablish the gospel in my church, because without it, people can't really receive a fullness of those blessings. And then he goes on. He tells them, you guys need to go out and preach repentance. And he kind of says, you know, it doesn't really matter how many, even if it be one soul, right? It's not about the quantity of souls you're bringing to me. That really isn't a concern. It's the actual effect of their teaching. It's not measured in how many souls, but kind of in the contriteness of those souls, right? Make sure that your teaching and the impact that you're having on people is, is making meaningful change, not just bring in the masses so that we can brag about how many members there are. That, that doesn't really matter. He's like, each individual soul matters just as much if you brought in one or you bring in 3,000 in one fell swoop, like Wilfred Woodruff did, you know? Like, um, it doesn't really matter because that one soul is just as valuable as those three as those three thousand. Um, but he's basically saying, you know, it would be incredible if you bring in many. How great would be your joy if you brought in a lot, you know? But the point is, um, drawing that line between the the need for repentance, the atonement, and the ability to repent, and the restoration of the gospel. And this is all before he brings up, you know, any any actual restoration of a an administrative church, right? He's basically just talking gospel principles right now, but setting the stage for his next mandate to them, which is coming up not not too further much down in the chapter. Um, the other part that I really liked, starting with verse 17, Behold, you have my gospel before you, and my rock, and my salvation. Ask the Father in my name, in faith, believing that you shall receive, and you shall have the Holy Ghost, which manifesteth all things which are expedient unto the children of men. And if you have not faith, hope, and charity, you can do nothing. Contend against no church, save it be the church of the devil. Take upon you the name of Christ and speak the truth in soberness. There's a lot of good advice there. First of all, he reminds them again, you have the foundation of the gospel. Now go teach it, right? But he, he tells them, you know, contend with no church. And to that, what that means to me is don't go picking fights. This is a, a time period where there's a lot of contention among different sects and among different religions. And he's like, you know what? Don't be like that. Don't be going out there to Bible bash. That doesn't that doesn't improve anyone's view on you. It doesn't convince anybody. It's just to like that's a worldly way of going about it. Contend with no church, say to be the, the church of the devil. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means is go teach truth. And by teaching truth and by being honest and direct, you are contradicting the devil's teachings, which are sly, they're backhanded, they're conniving. If you go the opposite route and you teach nothing but truth and teach it as honestly as you can, it doesn't matter what other sect or church people belong to. They'll hear that and they'll be like, wow, that resonates, right? Let the spirit do his, his job. Let him do the rest. You go out and provide the forum for him to be able to do his job. And that can't happen when you're being contentious, right? Yeah, I think, I think there's a for us as disciples, and as we study these 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 scriptures, we should be cautious that we 
we are all given the mandate to cry repentance. There's cry repentance is for all of us. But there's a difference between how we do it, you know, and and especially because before he goes into cry and repentance, he well, he, he mentions that, but he's also hand in hand mentioning how the worth of a soul. I often feel like it's it's very easy when you know something that someone else doesn't. And it could be a practical thing. It could be, you know, something about a computer or a program or a process at work or a piece of equipment more than someone else. Or we often use that to feel superior to someone. And sometimes we can cultivate this need. Well, if they wanted to know, they would find out for themselves. Yeah. Kind of like this, this, and, and what a, when it comes to the gospel, we've been told that many are searching. They just don't know where they're to find it. They they would they would be there with you at church, sitting next to you. Yet they don't know where to find it. And it's not as simple as, hey, it's right here. No, it's what are all the experiences that have converted you? And try to condense that. We we try to condense all that into two, three or four sentences. Says we argue and shout with at somebody. <laughs> And they have the right to have a similar experience. Everyone should hear the gospel in their tongue. Everyone will come to it in their time. So, so what is our role? Our role is, one, we need to be the example. We need to be available and prepared to give a man a reason why we're happy, why we follow the Lord, why we do these things. But there's a balance between you're not out there condemning and fault finding in others because pointing out their faults will eventually lead them to to recognize wrong and cast off their traditions and cultural things and, and accept you no that's not going to happen you know and and that's that's part of the turmoil we live in is we have conflicting ideologies in many various ways how to farm how to govern how to whatever right and what happens is people begin just shouting at each other. And that's kind of the what started this whole story with Joseph Smith. He's, he would view the contention, and it was not matching the message. It was not matching what he was reading. And that created the desire to ask the Lord. Now, there's, unfortunately, that's, it's more common for people to view the contention and say, I want nothing to do with any of that. Excuse me, I'm going to be over here, which happens, and unfortunately it happens quite often, particularly when members, people who claim to, to believe or follow a path, do not act in accordance to that path, you know, and it's, we're all there, we're all hypocrites in one way or another, none of us are perfect, but the, the pattern that the Lord has set for us is to continuously be cleaning our inner vessel, and we do that weekly through the sacrament, through our covenants. And little by little, we're polishing things, making them better. And it's leading us to a place where we'll have charity and even more tolerance and love towards other, not more self-righteousness. And that's where we have to be very honest with ourselves and seek the spirit in knowing, is my scripture study, is my efforts leading me towards a self-righteous attitude? Or is it leading me towards a humility charity attitude and a good metric is how do you honestly view people you don't agree with how do you honestly view your enemies do you honestly pray for them do you pray that bad things happen to them and they'll snap out of it or do you pray to better understand and to let go of your anger and feelings and to continue to find peace right i think i think verse 21 the very end of that section that I read, take upon you the name of Christ and speak the truth in soberness. I think that's really what that's talking about. That soberness to me means to keep a cool head and don't be confrontational and don't be belligerent and don't be angry. Soberness, like be able to control yourself, be able to try to understand where the other person is coming from, speak to that and not overpower people, right? Because there's this idea that 
I'm just going to go in there and blow their socks off and drop the mic, you know? And it's like, the Lord doesn't really act like that most of the time. You know, it, it keeps going back to the still small voice that pierces to your soul, right? It's never in the earthquake. It's never in the wind. It's the still small voice. And that's how we should act too. We shouldn't go in there and be like, if you don't believe what I'm saying, then you're just stupid, right? Because that's the way the world acts. If you don't understand what I'm talking about or you don't believe what I'm saying, then you must be dumb. And that's, that's not how the Lord would ever approach this. It's not for everyone, you know? And it's like, no, it is for everyone. Yeah. The gospel is for everyone. And it is in such a way that a child to an apostle has room to to partake, you know, and to exercise in their sphere of responsibility, right? I like the next section, the next part starts kind of in verse 23 where Jesus Christ is going to emphasize taking upon us his name. And in verse 23, he says, Behold, Jesus Christ is the name which is given of the Father, and there is no other name given whereby man can be saved. Wherefore, all men must take upon them the name which is given of the Father, for it is the name, for in that name shall they be called at the last day. Wherefore, if they know not the name by which they are called, they cannot have a place in the kingdom of my Father. And now behold, there are others who are called to declare my gospel, both unto Gentiles and unto the Jews, yea, even the twelve. And so, one of the things that um, in the in the lesson it asks us to, to think about and ponder, like, what is the importance of a name? And what is... Why why would it be so important that the Savior is asking us to take upon us his name? And also that we know that it's only through his name that salvation happens. Well, I think it's the the first thing that comes to mind is to avoid ever getting caught up saying, Oh, I'm a so and so follower. This is the person that I listen to and follow about some other mortal person here on earth that has a lot of good ideas, right? Because there are a lot of people that are very persuasive, that have a lot of good ideas, that say a lot of good things and say it in an, an interesting, charismatic way. And we can be like, oh, that man, I I follow this guy and this person, and they're just amazing. And it, I've been following their program now for X amount of time, and I feel like that that's, that's going to be the best thing for me. There's nothing wrong with self-improvement, right? And there's nothing wrong with finding someone who's giving good advice and, and taking some of that. But if you start to forget where salvation comes from and you start looking at that person as kind of a proxy savior, you know, yeah. that's a problem because no one had the ability to carry out the atonement the way Jesus Christ did. And he is the only one by which that could have happened. And so I think a lot of times people, whether it's for notoriety or fame or money, they, they really like to get out there and say, just follow my 12-step plan, follow my whatever, and you'll, your life will be different. You'll be rich, you'll be famous, you'll have no problems or whatever. And people buy into that and they start saying, you know, oh, I listen to this person or I follow this person to the point where they start to neglect what, where truth actually comes from, you know, even though that might be some truth there. It's often mixed with philosophies of men. And it becomes problematic. I um, I kind of think about how if we don't have a plan, then we are easily able to be persuaded to follow someone else's plan. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like if you don't know the destination and have a roadmap of where you get there, if if you don't know where you need to go, where you're going then whether you go left or right doesn't matter. And you'll end up wherever you end up. I, I view us as taking on the name of Christ to say, we are going to follow him. We are family now. We are, as, as, as wonderful as he is, we're completely humbled that he would allow us the honor to claim his name. And we can feel really inept and inadequate and some of these things can feel overwhelming. Like, how do we rise to this? How do we become the salt of the earth? How do we 
carry off the church triumphantly at the last day? You know, how do we raise the greatest generation we've been told has been saved for this time? How do we, you know, take upon us the name and act as if Christ was there, the one that is perfect, yet at the same time we're told, you know, the moat in your neighbor's eye while you have your beam in your eye, you know, clean thing. So there's a lot of opportunity to even in wanting to get to the right location, allowing Satan and others to dictate the plan to us. And what I'm trying to say is we are all supposed to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no mediator between Christ and us. He is the mediator. And oftentimes, even with good intentions, we can allow other mediators in. So, but that was kind of what I was getting at before. Like a lot of times we find someone who is by all means an admirable person, but we almost put them as the person to follow in between, like in between us and Christ. Like if I follow what this person does, then I'll be following Christ. And it's like, well, why can't you just follow Christ? Or why can't you just think about what would Christ do in this situation instead of, you know, what would so-and-so do? Or thank goodness so-and-so is here to show me the way. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to explain what I'm talking about without, like, pointing out specific people or, or figures or whatever. But it's a tricky balance because training wheels, for example, are a real thing. Sometimes you, you go because I really like this missionary or I really like this school teacher. They keep you coming back. But all of those things, all the helps should lead you to be able to pedal on your own. Yep. It should never be a forever you now are indebted to me. And it's like there are some things I take on faith based on, on the person saying it, the prophet. He'll say something, I'm like, okay. And then as I exercise my agency and are obedient and pray about it, I gain a witness that that is right. And so follow the prophet is the name of the song, but follow the prophet because he points you to Christ. Not because he becomes a type of Christ himself. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I don't think any prophet would ever go up there in a general conference and say, be just like me and you'll be saved. You know, <laughs> if anyone is ever saying stuff like that or even remotely close to that, that should be a pretty big red flag. You know, that they're, they're, what they're seeking is something other than to guide you to Christ. Um, and that's the perfect explanation is leaders that really have an intention of providing people the training wheels want them to take those training wheels off and no longer need them anymore. A missionary might bring someone into the gospel because they are uh, a spiritual dynamo, but when they leave the area, those training wheels might come off. And is that person going to fall over and quit? Or is that person going to say, they gave me the tools, they provided me the means to continue on and maybe wobbly at first, you know, but I, but I, I learned enough from them to be able to continue. I don't rely on them to stay up. Moving on in this section, they, uh, the Lord starts to speak um, in verse 37. He says, And now behold, I give unto you Oliver Cowdery and also unto David Whitmer. He brings in David Whitmer into the revelation. That you shall search out the twelve who shall have the desires of which I have spoken. And by their desires and their work, you shall know them. And I like how the Lord does not tell them who the 12 apostles should be. He doesn't say, okay, take out your pen because I'm about to tell you the names, you know. He just kind of says, right, here's your assignment. You need to find the 12 apostles. But they're also told you're going to recognize them. And when you find them, it will be by their desires and their works. What is their intent? You'll know by the intentions and how they act. And I think a lot of people have good intentions, but maybe don't act on them. And a lot of people do things for appearances without real intent. And this is kind of a way to weed out those types of people. And it took them, uh, this revelation came in 1829, and they 
announced the 12 apostles and ordained the 12 apostles in 1835. I mean, that's six years. That's not an instantaneous thing. They didn't go out and say, all right, well, who do we know that's a pretty cool guy? You know, <laughs> like, yeah. so-and-so is pretty good. And, you know, they could have come up with 12 guys right then. But they didn't. They took their time. And some of them, I, I imagine, were found along the way. And they were probably like, hey, this guy, he's, he's the real deal. And I know that a lot of people point out that several of them fell away from the church, the original 12 apostles. Fell away from the church. They were excommunicated for apostasy. Some of them became very anti-the church um, around the you know schism of 1844. And in 1838, there was a couple of issues as well. But the fact of the matter is, that's where agency comes in. Um, these men were called. They were chosen. They were identified and chosen and called and ordained and set apart as apostles to do that. Now, that just goes to show no one is immune from temptation, not even apostles. And no one is restricted from using their agency, even apostles. They're not forced to do what's right just because they're apostles. You ready for a weird thought? <laughs> yes. So I thought about this because I think where, where did this belief in us in society that religious leaders are more than human or are more are you know almost magical in in their essence and i've often thought earlier on i thought why would these people fall away you know why why would they why would laman and lemuel after seeing an angel you know can then get mad at nephi like seven verses later you know why why did this why and i think about that as if if it were me i would not have fallen away you know? right like it kind of turns into this weird pride thing. We live in a world where the question of whether this this world is its shape is brought into question. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. And and so I believe that the official stance of this podcast is that the Earth is round. Yes. Yes. Okay. Just making sure. <laughs> yeah, the Lord has said so. Um. <laughs> No, but but my my thought is is the, these men they can be perfect in Christ as as they are aligned with Him they will improve and get better just as we the average member all we're asked to to do is to stay on the path. Everyone has deficiencies, everyone has strength, everyone has talents, and there's many scriptures that speak about the entire body of Christ. I'll bring your talents to the Lord's storehouse. Let's work together. Let's even each other out. If you're a good public speaker, you're this. If this sin is your temptation, then like the Nephites of old, hedge, hedge up the defenses. Make them better. Spend your time fortifying in you know that area. And so I'm saying all that to say, our expectation of leaders of the church is should be no greater than the expectation we have of ourselves. Yeah. And if we are told to watch and be watchful, so we're not deceived, so are they. And just as whom would Satan rather have fall? They, of course. And so they probably have to be ever more watchful in and, and prepared, but the 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 story of Israel, the war of Israel, which is a representation of the war within all of us, is regardless of the armies and the numbers and their tactics. If we are on the Lord's side, we are never outnumbered. We will never fail. Israel gets in trouble when we begin to compromise, cut corners adopt other people's traditions and try to justify them as, well, we can sneak this in here into what the Lord kind of told us how to do. And in that sense, the Lord had to be very strict, very black and white, that I've given you enough room to have everything you need without having to compromise these principles. And in, you know, in, in that sense, I look at these things and I've become, I've, I've started looking at the early church and all of the apostasies and things that occur through a different point of view, through it's easy to judge now looking at someone else's examples. But what are my apostasies? What are the things that I'm 
falling away on them. And I think you also have to think about the fact that everyone, including these 12 apostles and the men who called them, were all having their training wheels still on. Everyone's a new convert. Everyone's brand spanking new in the gospel. And a lot of them were Christian beforehand. But as far as like following uh, the Book of Mormon, knowing what the Book of Mormon says, following these updating revelations that come every few months or so, like that's a that's a dynamic world to be living in. And it's a complicated situation to navigate if you're barely growing a testimony, you know. And when things didn't go perfectly well, the big problem that happened in finances in the church led a lot of people astray, led a lot of people to say, eh, I don't think th this must be wrong. And uh, that those types of situations where you took the training wheels off maybe a little too early or you just decide, I don't want to ride this anymore. And yeah, it's, it's easy to say, well, if I took the training wheels off, I'd be fine because we have a completely different context that we live in. There's establishment, there's tradition, there's uh, well, heritage. It's like, it reminds me of the, the allegory of the olive tree, you know, where he speaks about roots. These roots are strong. Yeah. So let's nurture them. And I think the church now has strong roots. There's a process in, and I'm always amazed every time they call a new general authority, a new member of the quorum. I'm like, this guy's awesome. How great is that? And every general conference, I'm like, wow, these talks are so good. Why? Because the roots are strong. The system is working. There's, you know, the Lord is involved in all steps of the way. And it's almost like a filter. But look at us. Every member can have all the blessings of the temple all over the world. At no other time has that been the case. It's interesting, this next part here, where Christ speaks about punishment, eternal punishment, endless punishment. And he also commands us to repent, keep the commandments. This is from verse 10 to 16. But it's really interesting where he speaks about verse 15 and 16, where he says, Therefore I command you to repent. Repent, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth, and by my wrath and my, by, and by my anger in your suffering be sore. How sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, then they must suffer as I. And then it goes into probably one of the scariest kind of examples of how much pain he had to go through. But before we go there, this one thought on verse 15 that stuck out to me is, when he says, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth. I really, for some reason, that that's something I've been thinking about lately a lot, which to me, it kind of made me think of, the Lord doesn't get to this point of, I'm going to smite you without there being like a thousand warnings, <laughs> like countless opportunities. So as, as scary as this seems, he is telling us the truth. This gospel is a gospel of salvation and happiness. If you don't follow it, you won't have salvation and happiness. You will have um, damnation and suffering. And it's in all of the work that is being done, even today, to save, because every soul is great in the sight of God is not because the Lord delights in punishing people or delights that there are those that aren't going to choose. He laid down his life to save everyone. But it comes back to that agency. If we choose with our agency not to admit when we've been chosen a better way and not to exercise it in following that better way, then we will have to drink the bitter cup ourselves. And I think some of the context of this um, section 19 um, in the Joseph Smith Revelations book, it says, in June 1829, before this revelation was dictated, Harris and Joseph Smith, this is Martin Harris, 
and Joseph Smith talked with several printers in Palmyra and Rockford, New York about the Book of Mormon. Finally settling on E.B. Grandin of Palmyra, John H. Gilbert, the comp compositor who assisted Grandin in estimating the cost of the project and later typeset the Book of Mormon, recalled that Harris initiated the negotiations and planned to pay for the printing. Gilbert also remembered that Grandin would not begin work or purchase the needed type from the foundry until after Harris had promised to ensure the payment for the printing. Grandin's price to print 5,000 copies was $3,000, which, which would require Harris to impart essentially all of the property to which he had legal right. Printing began in September 1829. Joseph Smith likely dictated the text of this revelation sometime after the negotiations in June and before the 25th of August 1829, when Harris mortgaged his property to Grandin as payment for the publication, thus apparently fulfilling the revelation's injunction to pay the printer's debt. The language of the revelation suggests that Harris had already agreed to Grandin's terms, but had not yet arranged payment. Grandin's brother-in-law later recalled that Harris became, became for a time in some degree staggered in his confidence, but nothing could be done in the way of printing without his aid. Once Harris mortgaged his property, however, Grandin considered himself paid in full. According to Gilbert, printing then proceeded. As quickly as Mr. Grandin got his type and things got all ready to commence the work, Hiram Smith brought the office 24 pages of manuscript on fool's cap paper. So that's kind of what this revelation is sparked by. The fact that, you know, it's a revelation to Martin Harris about you need to pay this debt. The only way that this book is going to get printed is by this. But he doesn't really talk a whole lot about printing, right? Uh, the revelation really isn't so much about, hey, yeah, just, just go ahead and and do that. It, it goes a lot deeper, like you were talking about. It goes a lot into repentance and uh, eternal punishment and how the atonement was such a difficult thing to carry out and that they have to preach the gospel of repentance and declare glad tidings. That's in the chapter heading. And the reason why I think that that's the answer to this whole issue about um, making sure that the Book of Mormon gets printed is he's trying to instill in them the importance of this book. He's trying to show them, yeah, your mortgage, I understand, that's challenging. I understand that you've, you're going to risk losing a lot, but at what cost? Look why this matters. Because all of this, every sacrifice that's being made is for the opportunity to preach the gospel of everlasting joy, of repentance, of salvation to everyone, and to give them this tool, the Book of Mormon, to understand the, the gospel of Jesus Christ as maybe they've never understood it before. And, you know, to me, that's, that's really what this section is about. I mean, he's talking a lot about some very deep things that may seem like they don't have a whole lot to do with, you know, a printing press. But I think he's really trying to drive home, this is why this matters, and this is why your farm is kind of inconsequential. We should be willing to sacrifice anything to get this out there. I think you're right, because I felt like, as I was going through the lesson, that it almost felt as if they were expecting the money to go to print the Book of Mormon to be almost like an investment or a business venture that will, <laughs> will pay out yeah. dividends or at least I'll get my money back type of thing. And right away, it begins with what is the greatest worth is a soul that you bring unto me, you know? It's it's interesting because I, I think as a parent, you look at everything you invest in your kids. Are you at some point thinking, oh, they're gonna have to pay me back for all the diapers, all the times <laughs> I did this, all the things they broke. You know, and, and, and that is a legitimate thing. Like they cost money and effort and stuff, but why do you do it? Because seeing them happy and successful gives your life meaning. It, it makes you happy. And if we have just a small glimpse of what that joy would be, I think the Lord's trying to say, what greater joy will you have with all the people who read these words? And can you imagine the millions and millions around the world who've read the Book of Mormon? And one day we'll be able to look at Martin Harris and say, you know that farm? That farm changed my life. And and that's that's the that's how sometimes it's hard to see things. We have the blessing of hindsight. 
and see. But at the moment, when we're told to take a leap of faith, and I can't criticize Martin Harris much or his wife, I can't criticize him because I may be there having the same struggle that they're having. And over the years, I've, I've become a lot more grateful for the words of Isaiah because they have great comfort that he who waits on the Lord will never be disappointed. You know, and, they, and it's hard, you know, but how does this example translate to us in our day? What are we being asked? What is our farm that we're, we're being asked to, not to give up, but to give to the Lord? And what can and, he do? And not to give up with the idea that we're going to get it back plus some. Yeah. Because right? it may be that you don't get it back. The biggest thing that comes to my mind is time. This week I've been absolutely swamped with stuff. And time was like the most valuable thing I had. And I don't have, you know, a farm to give. I don't have liquidable assets <laughs> really to give to the Lord. And he's not asking for that. He's not asking for me to fund a, a project like he asked Martin Harris. But he is asking almost always for my time. And that is a difficult thing to give up sometimes because... You know, we look at it as, well, my family should get my time, or I just want a moment of free time for myself. I need to decompress. I need to de-stress. I need to have time for myself. Okay, yeah, but he's also asking you for some of your time, for service, for sharing the gospel, for whatever it might be, giving a re referral to the missionaries or, or just talking to them and giving them ideas of who to talk to. Asking for that, you're not going to get that time back. You know, the Lord's not going to say, oh, because you invested half an hour of your time to go clean the church on Saturday morning, I'm going to give you an hour back. <laughs> That's not how it works. That time's what gone. I, what I've experienced but, is, well, although we have scriptural evidence of him holding the sun in its place while yeah. the, the children of Israel could fight on, that nothing is impossible. I have experienced that when I put the Lord first, I am a lot more productive with the other time I have. And, and then another comforting thought in that experience is I think about King Benjamin, whom his discourse is just example after example of how gracious, merciful, and generous the Lord is. That we should never have the audacity to think he owes me something. I've given him enough, he owes me. No, because immediately he repays us. In, or even beforehand, he even goes to, you know, that, that the relationship between us and the Lord is never uh, a one for one. Like, I'll give you one, he gives me one. It's a, I give you one, he's willing to give you everything. And, and that's also how the atonement, I view that word it works, is I can barely crawl my way over there to ask for forgiveness, and he's willing to take up all my sins. So my effort in comparison to his, to which he goes in this verse to explain how exquisite and tremendous the price he paid. And, and at no time is, does the Lord ever belittle our struggle. Or say, oh, come on, I did this. How can you, I'm asking, you know, he, he's not that kind of leader. I think he knows because of the price he paid, how difficult the words he's going to ask you, the thing he's going to ask you to give up. He knows how hard that is for you. And he's more than happy with your effort with, with that, you know. Yeah, and he ends up, I mean, he tells Martin Harris, and part a portion of thy property, yea, even part of thy lands, and all save the support of thy family. Pay the debt thou hast contracted with the printer, release thyself from bondage, leave thy house and home, except when thou shalt desire to see thy family, and speak freely to all, yea, preach, exhort, and declare the truth, even with a loud voice, with a sound of rejoicing, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord God. Pray always, and I will pour out my spirit upon you and great shall be your blessing, yea, even more than if you should obtain treasures of earth and corruptibleness to the extent thereof. He's basically saying, 
you're going to give this up now. And it might be difficult because, you know, it's hard to give up things you have, things you enjoy or things that you feel like uh, sustain you. But in the long run, you're going to get so many more blessings than you could have gotten from a farm. And part of that is, like you mentioned, you know, the hundreds of millions of people throughout the world that have benefited in any way, shape, or form from the Book of Mormon. Even if they haven't joined the church, they, they still have benefited from its impact on their lives. And it's all because he was able to, he had the means to fund that printing. Started there. Kind of makes you think, like, if I were to impart with whatever time I have or impart with whatever the Lord's asking of me, what's the long-term benefits of that for people around me? And then what blessings might I receive in the long run from that? Yeah, there, there's two things that reminded me, two, two things I remembered from my mission that you reminded me of. One was before when I was deciding to go on my mission, I had a, um, a youth president, I don't know what they're called anymore, young uh, men's president, who kind of said to me, look, two years are going to go by. That's going to happen. What would you have rather have done? And I think that's what solidified it to me in my mind when he said that. And the other one was my mission president that he would say to all the elders as they they were leaving and ending their mission. He would say, you may wonder if how well of a job you did, what you could have done better. But don't underestimate the fact that you're, you showed up that you came, you know, that you answered the call. Um, and when I think about those two things, I think we know and believe the outcome of this earthly struggle. You know, what team is going to win? So where would you rather be? In, in the great building of Zion, you may only lay down one brick but you laid that brick down. You did something. And in the world we live in, it's easy to think all or nothing. Like I either have to be the greatest, or I don't even want to play this game, or I don't even want to participate. And that's not the way the Lord views it. Everyone that shows up gets to come home. And that's the parable of the laborers. He's saying, come, come work. Come show up and work in my vineyard. And, and we just have to make sure that we are showing up with real intent. Whether we only cut down one tree, whether we just provide water for those doing the most of the work, whatever it may be, are we there? Are we helping the team? Are we helping our family? Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing. For we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.